Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. We originally published this episode onto the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. We've stripped the audio and turned it into a podcast so you can listen to it on the move. Enjoy. You made a slight joke there, you know, you, you watch yourself on the bank account. I've been speaking out on this with some trepidation because I can assure you I don't want to be in a situation where I haven't got a bank accounts. And so if I'm, and I'm, you know, it would be harder to have a go at me. But if you're Joe Bloggs sent home, you start thinking, oh, I better be careful what I say or what I do. Welcome to Parallax Views, an IEA series of conversations about the politics of culture. My name is Mark Lindenning, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Fox, Lady Foy of Buckley. Claire and I were at university together uh, many decades ago. Uh, we met through student politics. We were involved in rather different uh, political organisations. Uh, we disagreed on many uh, issues, and we possibly still do, as we may discover later. Uh, Claire is now mixing in more exalted company than I am here at the IEA because she's a very active member of the House of Lords. Uh, she also served in the European Parliament as a Brexit Party MEP. Served might not be the <laughs> right word, but anyway. Uh, in addition to being a political activist, uh, she's a lecturer, broadcaster, journalist, and she established the Academy of Ideas, a really inst important institution uh, for all of us who believe in the open society, regardless of our broader uh, political uh, differences, and I'm going to be asking her about that. Before we come on to uh, broader matters, I'm very keen to get your take, Claire, on what has uh, recently happened to Nigel Farage, amongst others, having their bank accounts uh, suspiciously closed in a rather sort of Kafkaesque uh, kind of way. What do you think is the significance, if anything, of all that? I think it's actually hugely significant. Um, it, I, I think that we now know about it more broadly. It's cut through, as they say, because of what's happened to Nigel Farage. But it's something that I've been worried about for some time. So I, in the Financial Services Bill, a rather dull a piece of legislation, which I can assure you I know very little about financial services, but I, and, I, and it wouldn't be one of the ones I would be following through, but I put in a number of amendments in relation to this very question because I had been concerned by the um, way that PayPal had closed down the accounts of the Free Speech Union and of the Daily Skeptic and Toby Young, but also was for them a parents group that had been opposed to uh, lockdowns in relation to the closure of schools and the impact on children. And they just had their PayPal uh, financial you know, ways of collecting money suspended, just like that. And in that instance, they had the money kept. So I put in uh, amendments on that. But I, in the course of that, investigated banks. And I realised, because there was uh, an issue where Halifax Bank had had a social media campaign in which they said, we expect you to... Uh, oh, respect yeah. the pronouns of our staff. And when there was a little bit of a backlash, people saying, don't be ridiculous. And um, the person doing the social media account said, well, you know, if you don't like it, bank elsewhere, go elsewhere. So I, 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 you know, this was extraordinary to me. So I started to look at banks who have introduced, uh, uh, you know, the kind of terms and conditions we wouldn't normally all be reading regularly. I've banked at the same bank since I was 18, which is very, very, Probably very, very long time. Right, minute, exactly. And when you actually look at it, you'll find that what we stand for pages, you know, on their websites, which none of us ever read, have introduced all these values statements. And at the bottom, it says, if you... Uh, dis if you are breach of these values, we can close down your account. So it's like a student union. Actually. It's like exactly, and and of course, you know, values. You might think, you know, I, I understand. You know, they don't want to do money laundering. They're not, you know, and so on. But these are values that are highly contentious politically, and the one that stood out for me, of course, was the one that says any hate speech, including transphobia, Islamophobia, and so on. I thought, God, I breach these values all the time, according to their reading of of 
contemporary events. I looked at other banks, realised this was commonplace. I then looked in America and saw that actually this issue of financial services being cut off was a problem. And we remembered what happened in Canada with the truckers, where the government actually stepped in and stopped the bank accounts of the truckers' protests who didn't want compulsory vaccination. So I put in these amendments with a little trepidation saying, I think there's something going on here. We need to be careful. The minister, to, to be fair to the government, and this is rare for me, did are aware of it and and did sort of say whilst batting me off uh, and aw away from the question look we are looking at this this is something of concern but and i wasn't able to press it to a vote or anything because amendments but i all the time have followed this and i've kept asking you know what what happened to your investigations now it's become a big issue because nigel farage is a very well-known figure it's not just him Today in the newspapers, it's been revealed that most banks, most of the banks that we all sign up to, are part of the Stonewall Championship scheme. And they are therefore trying to outdo themselves in being trans allies. And one of the ways they exhibit that is by saying we won't have accounts for people who are gender critical. So a, an organisation that represents parents of trans young people who campaign to say that they don't want them to transition because it'll be actually bad for them in the long run, can't open a bank account. A, a vicar who went into his bank and said, why have you got all these rainbow flags everywhere? I want you to just provide a service. Four days later, had his bank account closed down. And a very senior um, government official in Scotland, I think, today has... She and her husband, I don't know if that's kind of... Well, I, I, it might well be. The yeah. And one of the problems is they don't tell you. And then just finally, there's also a, a very mysterious clause, which is only something I discovered when I went into the Lords, when I had some problems myself, in fact, um, which was that um, there's this very weird phrase called politically exposed persons, PEPs. And I was having difficulty... The, bank was mysteriously not giving me my card when in fact my card had broken it just stopped working and they were meant to give me a replacement and I felt like I was like being, I had to have about three interviews with bank manager and somebody says to me that's because you're a PEP and that means that there's more scrutiny and investigation because you could be as a politically exposed person and this by the way is council leaders all sorts of people cut fall under this category because they think that you could be money laundering or got at but you know bought off by the Chinese or the Russians or what have you um, it's one thing them having a bit of scrutiny, but I then discovered in a debate on PEPs in the House of Lords that Lib Dems, Labour, all sorts of people had had their bank accounts interfered in. But, but wait for it, their sons or daughters weren't able to get mortgages because they were PEPs. I mean, they were just stopped. Mm. And, and this is extraordinary. So this is widely known by the government. And it's a clause that was brought, it's like all these things, some good intentions at some point gone wrought with madness, uh, overly risk averse, um, the government not getting on top of it. Guess what? The PEP system was in one of those brilliant ideas from the European Union that was incorporated into the UK we law. So much to be grateful. Exactly. And so it, I, think it's the, I think it's the perfect storm. But the main thing is, if you say to the bank, is this because I'm a PEP or is this because I'm, you know, you, you know, because of my gender critical views, they are under no obligation to tell you. They just simply say, we do not offer you services or there is a query because so they don't they won't tell you it's like a mystery and that makes it worse because you feel embarrassed as though you're doing something wrong as though you don't want your friends to know that your banks because you know you're frightened that people will think you're doing something dodgy but you can't actually survive in society without a bank account these days which leads me to ask you do you think it is too shrill and swivel-eyed, and I, I confess to being both of those things from the, from the uh, outset, to suggest that we may be seeing the beginning of a Chinese social credit system with British characteristics slowly evolving. So in addition to this sort of stuff with the banks, the police uh, now have essentially registers of people they think are politically dubious, but the people they can't prosecute. So they have non-crime hate incident databases. They've just awarded themselves this power. There's no legal basis to it. 
So they've given, given themselves the right to put us on these registers. Now, overwhelmingly, of the 150,000 people who are on them, these are people who have expressed some sort of transgender critical opinion. So going back to your point about Stonewall, every police force in this country has handed over taxpayers' money to what is a political organisation, which is in itself extraordinary. So are we not seeing the beginning of a movement towards some possibly very sinister situation what? in which yeah. people can be suddenly cut off from their bank accounts and, and the rest of it? I, 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 I don't think it's entirely swivelled. I don't think we need the Chinese analogy. I think it's sinister, full stop. Um, China's in some ways much more open about it. I mean, they're just well, quite they're straightforward. Honest, as I said British characteristics. <coughs> um, yeah. what, what really worries me is that this is happening all over the place. But it's insidious. And so what happens is, is that the way that our laws are created, um, you discover have been through some machinations where they've removed, for example, the word woman or mother from a, a, a bill on maternity. Uh, we have instances where you, you find yourself cancelled, but without it being kind of headline, no platforming. You know, you just suddenly disinvited quietly because it's upset somebody somewhere. I think that the... The, the, the atmosphere at the moment is that you know that you have to walk on eggshells, be careful what you say, and watch your back because institutions, not just student unions, which you know is hard enough if you're a student, but you kind of can write it off as a bit of a temporary blip in your life that you have to negotiate your way around universities. But it's far beyond that. And I don't think it... I mean, the most fashionable issue, of course, is... Um, fashionable in the sense that everybody is at the um, calling you transphobic in order to cancel you has just become so acceptable. Um, and, we, and, and by the way, it's not just banks. If you consider what's happened recently with Wix, who provide kitchens and you know construction wear, and the Wix have basically said anyone who doesn't agree with our no LGB without the T, we don't want their custom. You think? This is capitalism for you. What's happened, right? We don't want your custom because you've got different views than ours. We're going to turn you away. And so you get the chilling impact then of a threat that lurks where you suddenly become conscious. And you made a slight joke there, you know, you, you watch yourself on the bank account. I've been speaking out on this with some trepidation because I can assure you I don't want to be in a situation where I haven't got a bank account. And so if I'm, and I'm, you know, it would be harder to have a go at me. But if you're Joe Bloggs sitting at home, you start thinking, oh, I better be careful what I say or what I do. I better be careful I don't criticise the local shop for, you know, festooning the place in, 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 in you know, uh, LGBTQ plus flags. I better... And then, of course, there's the critical race theory. I made the original point about PayPal, and I think that was definitely aimed at people who had been critical of lockdown. So... Which issues are they? Can we have a list? And then, in truth, we can be frozen out of not just polite society, but out of a functioning, being able to function as a citizen in the UK. Very dangerous. So I, I'll take it that you don't think I'm being stupid <laughs> No, but I, I, the only thing is, is that there is a sort of tendency to want to see everything as slightly organised. I think in typical fashion, mm -hmm. what's happened in the UK is, is that we have a weak government who have been both complacent, sometimes complicit, but often just negligent. And as I've pointed out, it was last year that I made this fuss about the banks. They said, oh yes, 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 almost like nothing to see here, but we'll have a little look at it. But with no sense of urgency, a tendency to want to suggest that I was exaggerating things. Now it's brought to the fore. They said, oh, well, we didn't know this. Well, that's just not true. And that happens all the time. They'd rather not deal with difficult issues. Um, moving on to sort of a broader uh, but related um, thing I want to ask you about. Why did you establish the Academy of Ideas uh, and its various very successful spin-offs like the Battle of Ideas and Debate Matters? Um, it seems this kind of initiative is hugely important in terms of the sort of ideological milieu we are now in? Well, originally it, it emerged, I mean, we, we actually founded it in 2000, it's a long time ago, but it was partly in reaction to 
um, Tony Blair getting elected, but a broader uh, way that politics, we were told, was non-ideological and it was all a matter of technocracy and managerialism. And the, the, what we would have is governments who would manage things for us so we didn't have to worry our pretty little heads. And what that meant was that more and more decision-making, more and more political discussion was ring-fenced away from us. And you'd get politicians who'd say things like, the evidence shows so there's no debate. You know, so you can't discuss that. We were then in the European Union and they'd say, well, that's, it doesn't matter what you think about that because that's been decided by the rules-based system that we are in called the European Union, so you can't discuss that. So increasingly thought, well, what can we discuss? There was also the emergence of, I mean, what we used to call then political correctness, increasing areas of life that you were told you couldn't discuss or you could easily be labelled things we're now familiar with, but where you could be labelled a bigot or a racist or something if you dared challenge multiculturalism. So I'm very keen on uh, living in a multi-ethnic society like anybody, but multiculturalism is an ideology that means that you're not able to criticise people from different cultural backgrounds for their views, for example, without being accused of some... And also I could see it was leading to identity politics. So... The Academy of Ideas, we thought, well, we've got to create an alternative public square. We've got to start having events at which we encourage people to debate and discuss, not get either stuck in kind of narrow policy terms of what works wonkery on this one side, or be told that they couldn't discuss more fundamental ideological, philosophical discussions uh, on the other. It was also the start then of spin, what we knew as spin, where you were basically being told politicians are all being trained what they should say to you. So you're starting to lose the ability to have spontaneous political debate where you'd have very lively, sometimes quite ferocious, local council meetings or, you know, local events. That was all kind of like professionalised and we wanted to go back to the war, the tradition of kind of... Live, li lively, lively shouting matches that were mm. well organised. So that's how the things like the Battle of Ideas Festival emerge and so on. And the problem, I'm afraid, is that rather than it being, you know, we, ha we hope that we become an important voice for free speech in this country. But I can't say, oh, you know, what a success we've been, because the reality is, is that things have become more censorious as we've gone on. Um, Therefore, the Battle of Ideas Festival, for example, with its rather anodyne slogan, free speech allowed, that's suddenly become a revolutionary slogan. You know, it's like sort of, oh my God, how daring of you. Um, and uh, so, but I, but I do think that we have provided different formats for encouraging people to see there are two sides to an argument, not even two, but many, that there's grey areas, there's more introducing nuance, and also saying you are allowed to interrogate even difficult questions, and you should. You have a, an obligation as a citizen, and we very much put the emphasis on public conversations so we don't have people lecturing, famous people lecturing people. We have panels of four or five people, and half the time is given over to the audience joining in and having a conversation. So it's to stimulate political discussion, and I think we, we are needed now more than ever, sadly. Um, you mentioned the drift towards sort of technocratic politics as being one threat, but it seems to me in addition to that, what we're seeing is the collapse of foundational philosophical thinking, and that is being replaced by a very kind of emotive, more aesthetic type of politics, which results in the simplification of attitudes, you know, are you a friend or an enemy? Am I for this or against this yeah. instinctively? The collapse really of kind of relational thinking. I mean, do you see that also as a as well, something that, we should be worried about? That is the contemporary real threat to us. It's almost as though people have, there's a suite of opinions that you know are the right opinions. And if you go against them, you're in trouble. And so rather than that being where you've had to work through morally and philosophically and ideologically what it, where do I come from on this, and to try and, as you say, work out from some foundation that's got some depth, you've rather got... Which can be challenged. Which can be challenged. Exactly. And, 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 where they're on this. Yeah. yeah. But if you've got a kind of like, if you don't agree with these 10 things, you're a bigot, 
then, you know, very few people go, I'm a bigot, right? So they want to go and stand with the bigot. So you kind of know you have to sign up. But this is actually encouraging a thoughtlessness. So if you go to, just to use it for, for young people, you go to university and they say, are you on the side of, um, uh, you know, critical race theory or are you a racist bigot? Most people go, oh, I'm, uh, but you're also 18, so you're not entirely sure of what the critical race theory stuff is, but you think it sounds, um, um, well, I'm not a racist bigot, so I'll stand over here. You're not allowed to then go, well, could you explain to me what critical race theory is and what your particular outlook on, for example, anti-racism is or uh, white supremacy? Without them saying, you now need to go off to a re-education class in unconscious bias because you haven't immediately said yes. And we've got a slogan called silence is violence, which means you can't even sit it out and be quiet, right? Because if you actually are an active proponent of the contemporary uh, uh, fashionable causes, then you'll seem to be complicit in some way. So you, you, you do find yourself, as you say, having to choose very quickly without any thought, without any consideration of conscience or where you stand, um, what side you're on. Now, you, the point you make is, is that we, we were old enough to, to have come from different sides of the political spectrum, very much so, but where we had some appreciation of maybe what we thought then the left and right meant. But we weren't, and, and, and you know, there was a fair amount of, you know, name calling. I'm not trying to pretend that we all got sat around so singing. So not, we didn't sit around singing Kumbaya and all sorts of getting on really well. But we did understand that we were involved in a political argument about future visions of society. We kind of knew where we were coming from. We were reading similar texts often and coming to different conclusions about them. But we well, kind I of... used to buy your party's newspaper. And indeed... I can't say that you had one, but anyway, but I took seriously. I used to read, I used to read um, IEA pamphlets, actually fairly religiously, so that I could work out what I disagreed with them on. But you know that was, but I, you know, I, I I've just uh, had to move house, and I found boxes of, 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 as it were, what were considered to be the right wing, you know, Centre for Policy Studies IEA, and they're all underlined by me, right? Kind of working out where I stood in relation to them. So even though I was a member of then shockingly, of the Revolutionary Communist Party, I was reading voraciously and widely. And that meant that you were involved in discussions and debates in good faith on issues that you genuinely felt, no, your way is not the best way to achieve the ends you want. Or I've got a different end in mind, but we understand that we're being... We didn't actually think... Uh, despite the insults sometimes thrown around, we didn't actually see each other as evil, but we understood and were able to have a conversation. Now, with no foundational um, premises in common, you basically will not be able to have that level of conversation. I, I've noticed, for example, that if I go in, uh, you know, it used to be the case that if somebody said that person should be banned or that argument should be banned, you'd say, free speech, you know, that's, a sense, that's censorship. What about free speech? And people would at least be defensive. Now they say, well, free speech. If you're a free speech absolutist, that shows how dodgy you are. You think, what? So there's no, there's no basis on which you feel in a democracy that you have common, uh, even common understanding of the same things. And, and, and I think that's made it very difficult. We know that social media hasn't helped. And I'm afraid that both sides now do it. I mean, you know, one side's trying to cancel you and the best, and, and, you know, the anti-cancel culture side, my side, now trying to spend their whole time going through social media, trying to find things wrong with what the kind of social justice worries have said so they can cancel them. It's like a spiralling and descending into not an elevated political discussion, but literally a kind of name-calling, shouting match. It's very unedifying and it's very unhelpful. And ultimately, it seems to me that liberal democracy um, can't function um, if you don't acknowledge that the people who disagree with you are legitimate opponents rather than enemies. Once people start being classified as part of an enemy group within the society, then of course they become simply avatars for oppression. And therefore, you can sort of do anything you want to them. You can deprive them of their rights and all the stuff I think we're beginning to see. It seems to me the logic of identity politics is such 
that it's simply not ultimately compatible with a pluralistic liberal politics. At some point, there's going to be a point of contradiction, and ultimately, one of those two broad perspectives is going to have to win because I, if you, unless you see other people as individuals with equal rights to yourself, even if you dislike what they're saying and stand for, then um, once politics descends into group-based politics, then it, it, the, the logic is simply different because liberal democracy is predicated on individuals having rights to represent themselves. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the problem, you know, the prior problem almost of, of identity politics is that if you then are to argue, for example, when somebody says, as a woman, or as a Muslim, or as a trans person, or as a lesbian, or as a disabled person, and I represent this group, and you then try and argue about what they're saying, they then will say, and this is often said, you are now attacking all women, all Muslims, all disabled people, right? So it becomes very personalised. And the more that that's gone on, the more that you cannot engage in an objective conversation. And that dread phrase, lived experience, trumps all. So people say, you can't criticise my views because this is my lived experience. And because you're taking me up intellectually, you're erasing my lived experience and disrespecting it. And that makes you a bigot, right? Because you are, because the identity politics says that what, who you are matters more than what you are arguing. So you're not having an argument. You're basically, yeah. see, and you're trying to have an argument and they're going, you're attacking me. And of course we get, see this now all the time. People take things very personally. Well, that's one problem. The second problem that, that I think has become a much more conscious tactic is that there is an attempt to, as you say, delegitimize one's opponents by giving them the most terrible uh, brandished names, right? So we, we saw in relation to uh, anybody who voted to leave the European Union, the hostility didn't actually take the form of an argument about why you should or shouldn't be in the European Union. It was an argument, it wasn't an argument, it was a label that said you are gammon, which basically was a kind of white, red face, you know, working class type. Um, you were uh, uh, xenophobic, you know, you just hate all foreigners. You are knuckle drag. I mean, I, you know, this phrase, knuckle dragging Neanderthals have been allowed near the ballot box. I mean, that's like extraordinary thing to say about a fellow citizen, right? And that was like, especially millions of them who just won in a legitimate referendum. But that was the sort of thing which, actually was not confined to the student union arena of maybe people being a bit immature. This was coming from the establishment and the people who ran British society who said that about their own voters. Yeah, I remember David Lammy, an elected Labour member of Parliament and supposedly a Democrat, saying the following day after the result, the result must be ignored. Yeah, no, he, he did. He was saying there should be a second rigged referendum. He was saying, we're just going to ignore this. And um, uh, David Lammy can take full credit for me standing as a Brexit party MEP because I'd actually been approached by Nigel Farage to stand and I'd said no. And then I, two weeks later, having, you know, getting more and more wound up by, by what was going on, David Lammy said that anyone who was involved in Parliament had been involved in the EU was worse than the Nazis. And I, I heard that on the Sunday. <laughs> I heard that on the Sunday, on the Monday morning. <laughs> I didn't know you said that. Yeah, wasn't it? And it, it, on the Monday morning, I phoned up and I just said, all right, I'll do it, right? I wish I wasn't intending to, because I just thought this is dangerous now. This is getting out of hand. And the thing about the delegitimizing is once you, you know, let's be honest, if somebody is like a Nazi, I'm probably not like rushing around to have an argument with them, right? You know, if they're kind of like beyond the pale, you know what I mean? Like if you said to me, well, you believe in free speech. Why aren't you engaging in interesting conversations with, you know, pro-paedophile or, you know, or people who explicitly say that all black people are inferior? I mean, no, you know, you kind of in your head just go, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, that's probably not I'm engaging. respect their right to say whatever they want. Of course. Yeah. But nonetheless, I don't feel like the need to engage, right? I mean, you know, i.e. the margins. The reason I'm saying that is because psychologically, if you've described all these people as beyond the pale of debate, it helps justify why you shouldn't have a platform. Or give, not, not just a platform, but why you shouldn't even engage with them. You just can ignore them because they're like scum, you know, animalistic, not worth the time. 
And that's now applied to wide ranges of people with the wrong views. And when I meet people, like, I find it extraordinary that they will just simply say, oh, I, I won't have anything to do with them. But it's just that it used to be a fairly narrow group. I mean, I, I, I remember when we were at, um, uh, at university together, and people won't remember these days, because, but they're not that long. It's not that long ago. You know, you're talking the 80s, right? Early 80s. There were gangs of people walking around Coventry saying we are members of the National Front and we want all Asian people, they weren't quite so polite, burnt out of their houses and forced out of the country and they are like, like sort of, I mean they weren't like, I mean they weren't having a chat, they were like literally skinheads, they'd go beat people up, you know, and as it happens the police often look the other way. So there was a moment where racism was well and truly present. The problem now, and then there was an argument about whether they should be no-platformed at the university, and as it happens, even then I argued against no-platform. No, no, no. But on the other hand, now what's happened is, is that as that, the, the, the National Front Nazi image has now been expanded to basically everyone, <laughs> right, or anyone who doesn't go along with a very narrow, so endorsed, culturally endorsed group of opinions, my suite of opinions, that have been kind of ticked off by the beyond pensants, and therefore... We've seen the consequence of that. Millions of particularly working class people who haven't always got the lingo and don't even know how to negotiate some of this, not because they're stupid, but because who can keep up with the LGBTQ plus I want, you know what I mean? It's like, which bit do I leave out or not say? I don't know what the pronouns issue is and so on. They can be just treated like scum, and they are. And I think that that's a very dangerous situation to be in because... The, you you were asking me about the Battle of Ideas. The Battle of Ideas Festival has 350, 400 speakers, and traditionally we get people on all sides of the political spectrum. Now it's much harder to get people of a liberal-minded approach, liberal in the sense of, you know, the beyond pensant view. Yeah, but they're not liberals. No, they're not. I know <laughs> so that. You know that. I agree. I know, but there's a... That you triggered yeah, me, just. Yes. Um, but nonetheless... There's much more, uh, there's much more unabashed uh, way that people just say, oh no, I, I'm not going to debate on those platforms because it will endorse this, this kind of very, these people who should be ignored. And I think that that, that that means that people are really well and truly stuck in echo chambers. It's very dangerous. That's the end of democracy. You, you cannot have a democracy in which you effectively delegitimise you know, the voters on the one hand or anyone whose views are in contrast, what choice is there then? There is no alternative. You kind of get one of uh, all the same. And what do people do when they don't have a choice? When there's democracy fails? I mean, what, what do you think we will do? People don't just go, all right, then I'll go to sleep. They then become cynical about democracy. And sometimes they're going to go down both rabbit holes and resort to more, you know, to, anti-democratic means and I don't want that to happen I'm suggesting that is what the consequence of saying that their democratic voice is no longer valid. Um, the last question I would like to ask you is uh, which relates you know to your work with the, the battle of ideas and debate matters and all the other offshoots of the academy of ideas is how do you make the case for free speech um, to a younger generation, I know this is something you thought about. How, in an era when a lot of younger people, particularly younger middle class, higher educated people, seem to be obsessed by this elastication of the concept of safety, whereby they they think that hearing, you know, a word they don't like or a line of argument they don't like is is actually akin to a physical threat. How on earth do we communicate the, the case for real liberal values. So the, the, the first point is that, you know, or to, to use one project that you've mentioned, which is Debating Matters, the first thing to establish to people who are 16 to 18, that's that project, uh, its target audience, is to say there isn't just one side to this argument. There's, there's two or three. And, and the way that you... So even just to establish, look, this is a debate topic, and look, if you read, there's four articles that that um, make a really good argument for, but look, there's four articles that make a really good argument against. And then we give lots of background reading, and that way you can see, oh, it's not quite as simple as I thought it was. I, I can't just tick my suite of opinions box. And so 
it's just to establish that. That sounds so basic, but you know, you'd be amazed how many of the young people that we work with say, well, I didn't even think there was an argument against that. You know, now I've looked at it, I'm kind of brilliant. The, 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 the other thing that we do is that we, we've just finished actually, so it's very much on my mind, a three-day summer school called Living Freedom, um, at which there were 75 young people between 18 and 30, in which we introduced them to some of the moral dialect, with some of the history and philosophy of, uh, of these traditions, you know, who is Locke, who is Hobbes, and that's all very important. Um, and then, but, but more, we try and pr um, bring people together to say there are contemporary real prop challenges to freedom, and you've used one of the big ones at the moment, which is safetyism, you know, a broadened conception of harm that now includes psychological harm. And to really, in, uh, you know, discuss some of the moral dilemmas of our times in relation to freedom. To also free it, by the way, because we haven't really said this explicitly, from the left-right argument, because it no longer works. And to just say, don't worry about, stop worrying about whether you're left or right. Just look at these discussions and stop trying to put yourself into a camp because it's like a waste of time. Let's just try and tackle this. And we brought out this series of, this was part of our lockdown contribution, which was to, to issue these letters on liberty. And one of the things that we realized was they were just, they're just short pamphlets, you know, 3,000 words, 2,500 words. Uh, making contemporary arguments for liberty, you know, the freedom to drive or, you know, what we've got one at the moment on the harm principles just come out. Um, but it might be freedom in relation to arts or uh, artistic freedom, so whatever. But the reason we did that, we set our challenge was because I realised that every time I went and spoke at university, I speak a lot of, you know, to a lot of young people, that I was in danger of being complacent in using the same old arguments. And like I said, you just don't cut through. You can't just say, have you read your J.S. Mill? Wave it around on liberty. Because mm. everybody go, yeah, what? Well, and that in fact, we couldn't rely on some of the old arguments. And we had to keep making the argument for each new generation and make that an active, ongoing project. And to force ourselves to think, well, what are the challenges to freedom today? What are the arguments? Let's think about it. We bring out pamphlets, we say, buy these pamphlets, take them down the pub, give them to your mates, let's have arguments and discussions about them, let's have salons and speakeasies and all the rest of it. And so we do as much as we can. And obviously the whole premise of the battle of ideas, which actually attracts a disproportionately high number of young people than any of the usual kind of festivals around because it's a much more active atmosphere where we encourage people. And, and by the way, you don't have to come to the battle of ideas. I, I can't stand something like net zero targets, right? But I want green supporters to turn up. Mm. Um, I, I, Greta Thunberg's unlikely to come, but her supporters are welcome. And not so that I can, yeah, no, not so that I can slag them off, but so that you can actually say, well, you're worried about the planet. I don't think that's the most important thing. Or even if I'm worried about climate change, or I think there's an issue, how would you tackle it? Let's have intelligent conversation. I think it's, in other words, the the the, the name of that initiative for young people, living freedom, seems apt. You have to live freedom. It's not stuck in a book. It's not something that you can just kind of take off the shelf and deliver. You actually have to demonstrate through argument discussion what free speech actually means. And it's difficult, right? I mean, f being free is not easy. I mean, it's often the case that I think, I don't want to have to make that decision. I understand people, by the way, in authoritarian regimes, you know, they, they don't say, we're authoritarian, we're going to treat you like, non like children. They say, we'll look after you. Don't, you don't have to worry about these things, right? And I, I have some sympathy. We saw during lockdown, loads of people sort of said, oh, good, you know, um, you know, we don't have the choice. We don't have to worry about the moral choice of whether we get on the tube or not. We're just told we can't. And rather, you know, there wasn't a major rebellion. I mean, people now retrospectively, but people were like, that's a relief, right? Because being treated like a child is something of a kind of abdication of the responsibilities of being free. Being free, you can make terrible errors. You choose the wrong thing. You know, I smoke, as you can probably hear. I, yeah, I probably shouldn't, right? But I choose to do it as an adult, right? You know, I, you, you can make errors of judgment. You can, you can, you know, you can do all sorts of things that are wrong. It's not safe. You know, you, you're much more likely to uh, die and run over, be run over by a car if you go out near a road, right? If you stay in your room and never leave it. What society and humanity has had to choose over the years is 
Do you want to be looked after and safe? Or do you want the risk of being free? And what we've got to do is to sing a hymn to the joys of the risk of being free. But not try and pretend it's wonderfully, you know, that it's like a sort of smooth run, because it isn't. But to say, God, yeah, you know, prison's great, right? They take away your freedom, but they give you three square meals. You're all right, aren't you? Or, as people who have been enslaved forever have done. It, because, by the way, remember that sometimes slaves, partly, you know, might well have been looked after. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, they might. But they, they said, I don't want to be, I, you know, I don't want to be looked after. I want to be free and poor. I don't care. I want to decide. In other words, human agency, making those decisions, being a full human being means that you say, I'm a grown up. I want to take the risk of freedom and with all its uh, thorns along the way. That's, that's what I think we have to find new ways of selling in to new generations. Um, they want to be safe. Usually that's the sort of thing that you, in the past, we would have associated with somebody who was in their 80s. You know, these days, I'm in the House of Lords, there's quite a lot of people in their 80s and they're quite lively and boisterous. Whereas I go on a university campus and everyone's going, give me a safe space, I need a safe space monitor. You think you're missing out here you know, men and women, girls and boys, because it's exhilarating having the opportunity to shape the world that you live in and to take those risks. You can have great fun. You'll encounter some nasty things, but it's worth it. And that is a wonderful note on which to end uh, this conversation. Um, I'm so grateful that you um, have... Uh, agreed to participate in it. Uh, thank you very, very much. It was thank you, Mark. Fantastic. Thank you. And now I'm going to throw it open to you guys. Who wants to come back on something Claire has said or ask her a question? Um, well, I sort of very much agree on your um, like emphasis on the importance of debate in the public sphere. Um, and I've been concerned about people like armoring themselves with fashionable ideas without really like interacting with each other. But, um, well, I'm kind of curious where you stand on like transgender issues and climate change issues, as, um, as you've sort of touched upon, um, considering or like supposing that you agree that all humans have their like, morally equal, rational agents. Um, yeah, so I'm just curious like what, what your Well, I mean, you know, first of all, to, to emphasise that um, historically, people have, for example, wanted to transition in terms of their in terms of their biological sex, and there's the, the or, you know felt deeply unhappy in their own bodies and have transitioned. There's been a process for it. It's not quite the same as the kind of social contagion that we see in schools, in which by and large it's it's young women who 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 are choosing to transition. And the problem we've got is A, that they're in school, so they're, they're very young to make decisions which might have uh, a huge impact on their lives because it can lead them down a medical path of, you know, double mastectomy uh, when you're well. I mean, to remove your breast, you know, taking hormone blockers, all of the things that we're familiar with. But that's, the danger with that argument is I don't want to play just the safety card. I mean, there is a safety issue in, in, in all seriousness. But the other thing is that it's it's one thing um, if uh, you so if you transition and that's it you make a transition you go through that when you're an adult that's fine that is you you could say realizing yourself but it's been politicized so that's not there's you know nobody you're not discriminated against if that's the case there is no laws against people who are trans there was historically by the way laws if you were gay right so. Those of us who fought against uh, the the criminalisation of homosexuality weren't saying you have to be nice to gay people or lesbians, right? It was that they should be treated equally. Trans people should be treated equally. But there is no law that doesn't treat them equally. That's the situation. The demand is that we all have to say that they're a woman, if you see what I mean, if it's a trans woman. And it's like, well, they're not a woman because a woman is a biological material entity. And I'm not being coerced into saying otherwise. Especially because in that instance, it means that some of the gains that women's liberation have made over the years are compromised. So that's on that. But, you know, you're entitled to have whatever view you want on climate change. It should be an argument. You would just throw that in. I mean, these things are arguments. My view is that climate change, 
does exist. I mean, I mean, it's so obvious that it does exist. I even, I, I mean, it's not even, I concede, I think a lot of it's man-made because I think modernity and our intervention through technology has changed the climate. I'm just not frightened of that, right? I think that, that modernity and progress throw up challenges. You know, there were people who said you should never build uh, trains because it will disrupt our local area. And luckily everybody went, carry on, and built the trains, right? Because, but obviously once you have trains, that causes problems for people. You know, it's, it's, that's what I'm saying is progress and freedom are not problem-free, but how you adapt to them, how you uh, deal with them is a different question. And as you know, the demands around climate change have become, there is no debate, this is only one answer, and they're actually philosophically anti-progress answers. They basically argue we should stop. And they blame humanity for every possible gain that we've had and say you're destroying the planet. And they put the planet above humanity, which I think is wrong. Do you want to come back? Or? Well, no, um, I, like, I now see that that's like a, like a really consistent argument. I don't, I don't agree fully with the, some of the things you said about climate change. But, uh, well, like, all the solutions to it. But, um, like, I now see that, like, for example, with the transgender issue, I see that you had a problem with the police, uh, like um, making it into politics and the sort of like way we deal with it rather than like trans transgenderism itself. Yeah. I don't know if that's understood that correctly. Who else would like to say something? Don't be shy, come on. <laughs> well, if not, uh, I, I would have a question yeah. on, the, on the banking issue. Yeah. Uh, because there have been lots of examples in recent years of corporate wokery. Uh, but most of the time, this just meant uh, grandstanding, that you'd have a company tweeting, we support Black Lives Matter, or sticking the transgender flag on their product, things like that, without really doing much. This seems to be almost the opposite case, where you have banks freezing out the customers or losing a customer, but without making much noise about it. There's not even much advertisement value. It's not even that they're signaling their great virtue. So it's not that uh, the, the bank said, uh, we hate Nigel Farage, and that's why we were doing it. Please come to us. We're the good bank. Uh, so what is the motivation here? Do you think that there's an ideological element, or is there some regulation that they are afraid of? Well, I think it's, there have been changes in terms of regulation at this level that... Um, all corporations have been encouraged to embrace uh, ESG, environmental, social, and I don't know what the G stands for, Govern governance um, targets, and also um, equality, diversity, EDI, equality, diversity, and inclusion targets. So, to a certain extent, every corporation, every institution then thinks, well, I don't know what that means, let's employ an EDI director or an ESG director and it becomes a kind of like virus that takes over you know because they employ one or two and then they suddenly it becomes a department and then it becomes then they, the next minute you know they're going they're on the board and they're directing what everybody's doing I mean, if you look at that but that's a sort of technical explanation I actually was always very nervous of people who just saw these things as virtue signaling I always thought they were much more deeply rooted and you might not have seen them in terms of customer facing, but you did see them in terms of being an employee. So, you know, in terms of the Black Lives Matters example that you gave, you know, it, it wasn't just that people gave huge amounts of money to Black Lives Matters. If you look at what happens in relation to, you know, the, the, when arts and social media companies um, had a campaign that everybody put a black uh, uh, barrier around their, their, their Instagram account or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. You think, oh, well, that's just like pathetic, you know, kind of like virtue signaling thing. But actually it wasn't because there was lots of instances that came to light of people who then didn't do that and were called out in mass Zoom meetings of thousands of employees and disciplined. Right. And, 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 and you know, so and we and we saw that. In fact, there was there's lots of cases where not going along with your own cor boss's corporate decision to introduce these things meant that people were disciplined at work. And one of the big issues that we've seen recently is Maya Forstater, who has just won her case because her views on the use of pronouns at work in, in that instance got her dismissed 
but um, we've we've um, just heard recently of another success story. So it's good. Somebody who works for the uh, the the civil service who objected to some of the critical race theory norms being introduced into her work in in in, in pensions and 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 welfare provision as a civil servant said, well, why are we, why are we kind of going around introducing notions like white um, privilege and uh, accepting on face value that we must identify and be you know, colour coding everything is effectively what happened. And she went through nine months of hell being disciplined for the, her views by the DWPs, it happens, the Department for Work and Pensions. And she's now just won over £100,000 in a discrimination case. In other words, they were more than virtue signalling. They took this on board. So what the question that we have to ask is, what has happened to the, in the market where capitalism, the corporates, not just because of RT museums and galleries or the, these kind of areas, institutions like that, but hardcore, allegedly profit-making organisations are so full of self-loathing that they basically have, are embarrassed to admit they make profit. That's the last thing you want to talk about. In fact, that's become a secondary mission to this values mission. And so I think capitalism's in real problem, in real trouble, because you haven't got anyone who will defend it. And I'm from a Marxist tradition, but at least Marxism had the virtue of saying capitalism isn't good enough, you need to go beyond it and make society more productive. I mean, right? I mean, that's a different a stage of progress. Exactly. Yeah. Without going down that yeah, route. Yeah, but yeah. yes, we saw it was on the way to somewhere. You know, it's insufficient. You know, this is kind of like the capitalist class themselves saying, oh, we don't like what we do. We don't, we can't possibly go out and argue, you know, that the market is good. What we can do with absolute certainty is wrap ourselves in the pride flag and hope that everybody will think that we have a mission. Like, well, I thought your mission was to make alcohol. Isn't that your mission? Or you're an oil company. What are you doing, right? But that, they're embarrassed by that mission. And if you go on a lot of websites, you know, and the banks, of course, you know, I mean, we should remember the financial crisis of 2008, they all went into crisis, right? They thought well, everyone hates the banks. Instead of them becoming better at banking, right? And, you know, we now discover that the Bank of England, of all things, has also become a major trans ally. And I think, I'm sorry to keep bringing the trans issue up, it's just that that has become the dominant discourse of values in Bank of England at the very time when we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, which partly, at least through the way they've dealt with interest rates and, and, and by creating money, effectively, are responsible for. And they say that their major project, this is what they've said, our major project recently that we've been working on, which we're about to announce, is how we can be better trans allies. You do think, what happened there? What happened? People are going to lose their houses. They are suffering because you won't take responsibility for the economy that you're supposed to run. They shouldn't be running it, by the way. The Labour Party should never have uh, given the Bank of England independence. It's confused the issue. Um, it, it, it was always a political issue, not a technical one. But anyway, they're doing their trans-ally stuff. So I think it's more than greenwashing or, trans or, or, or genderwashing, whatever. Wokewashing. Wokewashing. I couldn't remember the phrase. Um, but it seems to me that the trans thing has this totally disproportionate significance now for the the radical uh, left. So it's not literally, you know, a concern about this, you know, relatively small uh, group of people and their rights, whatever their rights should and and should not uh, be in a democracy. But it's because it's become a sort of for a lot of the left, most of whom are not trans themselves, they see it as a sort of a rejection, not just of heteronormativity, but of sort of bourgeois normativity in general. And that's why I think they kind of love it, that it's a sort of... It has this veneer of being a sort of revolutionary stance to take to deny even your own objective uh, physical reality. Now, like, do you think there's an element of you know? I think there's an element. I think there's an element of truth to that, but I do want to, for the record, note that we had a conservative party that introduced this into the public sphere. Mm. I, 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 the left actually were not quietly getting on and doing the trans issue, 
And when the, the Conservative Party announced that they were bringing in gender self-ID, originally they, they moved away from it, but they, but they did bring in the issue, I couldn't believe it. And I was going around saying to people, is the Conservative Party seriously bringing this into policy? And people said, yes, well, of course, it's just like, it's like we want to be ahead of the curve. We don't want to be the nasty party anymore. We want everybody to know that we're on the side of... They bought into identity yeah. politics. Practically every single policy that I'm trying to undone was brought in by a Conservative Party. So whilst the left, I agree, are all over this, I, I, that's why the left-right thing doesn't even work anymore because, yeah, you know, you think for, right. for various reasons. But the other thing is, I, you know, just, just consider these two things. One of the first people who actually had worked with people with gender dysphoria for years is a leading psychologist, a Canadian doctor... He'd worked with young people who would say, I feel I want to change my body. I want to change my sex. And he, he explained that this was something that had to be so carefully considered because on the one hand, sometimes it was that uh, young people have autism in the midst of puberty. You hate your body and so on and so on. You can't just kind of go, oh, all right, then that's OK. He also pointed out that, that young people who are, for example, gay or lesbian, at the age of 14, you maybe don't want to admit that to your parents, you're not happy with it, and you kind of experience it through your body, you know. So, And, and he said, let's be very careful. He was, of course, immediately cancelled. His clinic was closed down. He's one of the first people. But he gave one analogy. He said, if a young person, and he says, I have young people who do this, say, I, I, I'm a dog. I want to be a dog. I am a dog. And he was talking about autistic young people who are very dis dysfunctional. He said, I don't go, oh, all right, then here's a bowl of dog food and put them in a kennel. And he used that analogy to say you don't just accommodate to what young people want. And he's right. And it is the case that we have to be very careful because we're being told now because of something else, which is to say that children have equal rights to adults, which I think is not true, that um, adult rights are being undermined by this notion that young children, this is part of the identity thing, say, I demand that you call me this and recognise me as this. And you have to go along with it. Or you, and so teachers are affirming it, even when they don't think it's true. And one of the difficulties we've got is that I know somebody, as it, just only recently, who's admitted that as a lesbian from a traditional uh, Indian family, she didn't want to tell her parents. And the teachers immediately said, oh, yes, you're a boy. And nobody, and that was, I mean, luckily, she, it didn't go very far. Two years, she was a well-known TikTok person, as it goes, you know, made a name, but it was locked down, so she didn't get any of the drugs. Then she admits, well, actually, no, I was a lesbian, I just didn't want to tell my parents, right? But by that time, the school had turned her into a kind of famous person. You know, we have our trans boy here, you know. They didn't say to her, let's explore this for a bit. And if they had they would have been the ones to get into trouble. That's the problem we've got, right? So it might well be that you're gender dysphoric. And one of the, sorry, the final thing is one of the people who, who, who has raised, again, a psychologist who's worked with, in other words, they are empathetic to and hugely humane to young people who have got body dysphoria. Also use the analogy that she had worked with a person who believed that their pain in their leg was as a consequence of their leg and demanded that their leg be removed. That's actually more common than you think, particularly in people who've had some kind of trauma. You know, you're a doctor, and somebody says to you, you've got to cut my leg off because the pain is excruciating, and you know that there's no physical pain. But you also know they feel physical pain. This is a terrible moral dilemma, what do you do? In very, very small instances, it's been known that they have, have removed the limb right, of a healthy limb, and it slightly alleviated the actual trauma that the person was going through. But what you don't do is that somebody goes, I've got a terrible pain in my leg, can you cut my leg off? And you go, absolutely, right? So when somebody turns up and says to you, I'm completely unhappy in my body as a young man, I want you to remove my genitals, I want you to take them away, I want you to remove these things, I hate them, I hate them. What a medical person does and what any grown-up person does is not go, oh, brilliant idea. Do you know what I mean? How are you today, young woman? Without a drop of a hat. That is happening in this society. And if you look at what the detransitioners are saying, 
So they are basically saying, oh my God, two years later, I regret it. And now I've got this terrible, I mean, you've destroyed your body. So even though it's kind of the left and right and they want to absolutely attack, you know, heteronormity. And, I mean, what I meant by the left was the kind of new left. No, I understand. But I, well, all I'm saying is, yeah. I think is there's so many levels that we've lost our way from giving in to young people, you know, who, 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 by the way, my argument would be that if somebody says, I find Henry VIII boring when I was an English teacher, and the tendency these days is to have a staff meeting in which you say, don't let's teach Henry VIII, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, or something I taught once, um, and and all the the people, all my students said, "Oh, it's so boring. We don't want to do it." And my head of department said, "Maybe we should look at another text." I said, "Don't be ridiculous. They're sixteen. I'm going to make them love it." And I did. And um, but you know, you don't give in as soon as young people. Perfectly reasonable at sixteen to say, "I think that's so boring. I want to be entertained." And the grown-ups in the room have to say, that's because you're an immature child. And I am the English teacher, and you are going to listen. That tendency, which has corrupted yeah. education, has now been writ large around much more serious matters that goes beyond even the, is it the left's fault or the right's fault? On that note, unless anybody else something they're repressing they want to say. Thanks again.